Hello. When South African journalist Mary Lloyd moved from Hong Kong to Australia to work for the ABC, she thought her dream of big skies and four-wheel drive road trips had come true. Her husband, Channel 10 newsreader Hugh Remington, and their three young children were ill-prepared for the heartbreaking cancer battle Mary had to endure, and right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mary opens up to me about the battle of having chemotherapy in a hospital whilst enduring rigid COVID-19 isolation. So Mary Lloyd, thank you for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. That's great to talk to you, Peter. Mary, perhaps we should start at the beginning. When did you first realise something was wrong? Uh, it was a very ordinary, um, very, very common way of discovering it. Um, I, I actually remember the day and I was standing in, um, in our bedroom and I, and I just looked down at my cleavage and there just seemed to be a sort of a red patch. I think that was probably a coincidence. I um, gave it a bit of a feel and suddenly I felt a lump that at the time felt like the size of the moon. Um, it, it must have turned your world upside down. I mean, you know, fighting breast cancer is hard enough for any woman, but having chemotherapy in a hospital during COVID-19 isolation must have been a real ghastly situation. Tell me the dangers something like COVID has on a person undergoing chemo. Yes, well, at the beginning, um, well, to start with, I, I, I was told that I didn't have to have chemo because the initial pathology showed um, a very small, very early stage um, breast cancer. And so uh, we thought that I'd get away with just a lumpectomy and then some radiation and be done. But once they did the pathology and I had that surgery and it all got a little bit complicated and it turned out I actually had two different types of cancer in there at the same time. And so we we then decided that uh, we needed a little bit to, um, to, to, to follow a more radical um, uh, path with, with treatment. So um, I had a choice of um, some really hectic chemo and some, some pretty strong, but not quite so hectic chemo. And I decided it was, it was my choice. And this was, we're talking about uh, February in um, 2019. So the pandemic hadn't really kicked off here in Australia yet. We hadn't gone into lockdown. The kids were still going to school and all of that. But I decided that, um, you know, I was mid forties, got young kids. I wanted to go in all guns blazing and, uh, and just finish it off. I'd far rather um, fight it at, you know, in, in my mid forties and have it come back in my sixties. So I decided to go for the, 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 the full-on chemo. Um, and, and so I found myself starting chemotherapy just at the time when the whole country was going into lockdown. And so suddenly that did become quite scary. And we were seeing at that time these scenes in Italy of the health system not coping. And particularly that awful situation where you hear about doctors having to make those dreadful decisions because they're short of resources, they only have a certain number of ventilators, and they are having to, to decide who to give the ventilator to. And it struck me at that point uh, that as a person who was, was then compromised, what if I was in that situation, would I be the person that the doctor picked? Because you know I, I could be up against a healthy 20-something 
And so suddenly um, COVID uh, rushed up onto our shore very, very quickly and suddenly became something which felt very frightening. And that was also at the time where there was a lot of discussion online about whether this was just the bad flu and, and people saying things like, oh, well, you know, it's, it really is only the elderly and people with underlying health conditions who, who die from this. And I'm thinking, that's me. You know, I can hear you. You're talking about me and you're talking about me potentially dying and we've known each other for, you know, a good couple of decades. And do you realize that, that, that I can hear you talking about my potential death in quite a flippant way? And so I wrote about it at, at that point and about the idea of being a four percenter. So being one of, of potentially the, 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 the four percent in the community who, who, who could succumb to COVID and, and how, um, how, how frightening that felt at the time. Um, yeah, you've just said you decided to publish your story on social media and on television, as I gather. How did your family feel about becoming center stage in a story where the, well, let's be honest, the ending could quite possibly have been a tragedy? Um, I, to, to be honest, I, I didn't actually, I don't, I don't remember asking them. Of course, my husband is often center stage. He's, he has a, um, a big um, public profile anyway. So, I, you know, I think there was just an understanding that it was, it was my choice. And if I wanted to, to put it out there, then it was, you know, entirely my decision. Um, I, right at the beginning, I did kind of feel, you know, I'm quite active on social media and Instagram, Facebook, those sorts of things. And, and I, I don't like the idea that we put out pictures of our beautiful family trips. And then when we're going through something like cancer, you know, we just completely ignore it. So... I did decide, okay, I'm going to have to say something about it on social media. So before I did that, I contacted a couple of, of key groups. Um, my, my mother's group, who, who uh, really supported me here in Australia. I contacted a bunch of old school friends um, and, and called up a couple of other people to say, like, look, this is this has happened, just so that they don't they didn't feel then when they saw something on social media that um, that I'd sort of neglected to tell them. And then once it's out there, it's out there. You know, and um, it's much easier to 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 carry on. And people responded really well. And I, I think it was it was a, a great decision. I've, I've made lots of um, lots of lots of friends. I've had amazing support from people I still don't know um, and, and struck up some some lovely little friendships with people like Arthur Sinodinus, who would send me lovely notes because, of course, he's had his own cancer battle. Um, and you know other other women on on Twitter who have also gone through breast cancer and and now we share that kind of support for each other. So, so it's actually been quite lovely. And you need that support and that comfort. Um, here's a odd statistic: cancer in South Africa is seen as an emerging health problem, with breast cancer being one of the leading cancers in women. But here it gets interesting. Lifetime risks of developing breast cancer vary from a low of one in 81 in African women to a high of one in 13 among white women, similar to rates in Western countries. But in Australia, one in eight Australian women have to endure breast cancer. That's an incredibly worrying number. 
Mm. Yeah, and, and you sort of you look at that and you, you wonder, has it got something to do with um, diet or lifestyle? Of course, we do know that genes pay, play a very significant role in um, developing breast cancer. I know in Australia, there's um, a, very, a very large community, for example, of Ashkenazi Jews, and, and there's a high prevalence of the BRCA gene among that community. So that could, uh, that could contribute to it in, in some way. Uh, we also have very high testing rates here, so we're more likely to, to pick it up. I would imagine, and you'd have to talk to a public health expert about this, but in South Africa, um, there's, there's probably also other complex health issues which, um, which get to women a, a lot, lot quicker than, than breast cancer does, because a, a lot of women will be developing breast cancer later in their life. So we have a longer life expectancy here in Australia, so that, that would have a contributing factor. But you're certainly in the right place. By all accounts, the Australian health care is one of the best in the world. So, but so often we forget about the frontline workers trying to save lives during a pandemic. In fact, as a photographer, you decided to photograph and publish the entire ordeal and in particular, making heroes of the frontline workers. Yeah, so that's just sort of started out. I, uh, I I took my camera with me to hospital, and I'm not really sure why and what I was going to do with it. But it, I, I take it everywhere else, so why wouldn't I? Uh, so there I was sitting in in hospital for um, you know a, a couple of days on the first day, and and I thought, well, I'll just take photographs of the amazing people. I was just I think I was blown away that there were all of these people who were willing to. To work overnight and to to come in and and change the bins in my room and and I didn't know them, um, and you know I had that very strong sense from the moment that I was diagnosed that it's going to be okay because we know what to do. So from from my GP saying, look, this is this is what it is, but you're going to be fine because you know we we know how to how to treat this. And I'm going to send you to, to this surgeon and she's an expert. And I turn up there and she knew exactly what to say and exactly what to do. And I just felt, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm tumbling here. There was a real sort of sense of, of just uh, not knowing what I was doing. But then at the same time, this, this, this enormous sense that there are other people out there and they've got this. And then going into hospital, realizing it's not just the doctors and the specialists and the, and the surgeons and the researchers, it's people that you, you don't even see, it's the, it's the pathologist. So one of the types of cancer that I had that was, was kind of secretive was picked up by the pathologist. Um, I, I still don't know who that wonderful person is, but at some point he put a, put a call into the surgeon and said, hey, you know, we need to pay attention to this. Um, and then, yeah, you've got all those amazing nurses who are, you know, they are so, they're underpaid and they go unseen and they're unsung. And particularly during a pandemic, it is, it's just awful that we, that we don't, um, we don't value these people enough. These are the people who care for us. It just seems to me so ridiculous that we, that we don't, that we don't support them in the same way that we expect them to support us. It seemed like a very lonely treatment for you because of the, uh, the pandemic. You know, your family weren't allowed to come and hug you or anything like that. Um, that must have been incredibly depressing. 
Yeah, so I wasn't actually, I wasn't in hospital for, for chemo. So I would go in every day and I was very lucky because the, the chemo center, which was an amazing place, I actually um, started referring to it as the Kinghorn Day Spa instead of the Kinghorn Cancer Center because I thought that just sounded much nicer. Um, and it is uh, just a 10 minute walk away. In the heights of COVID, it ended up being about a 17 minute uh, walk away. Um, uh, well, yeah, so what we decided to do as a family was the, the, the best strategy that we had was to not allow me to be infected with COVID because I was immune compromised. And so if I got it, 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 it could be quite dreadful. So uh, we were quite lucky. We had um, a, a room under our main house. We, we sometimes let it out. And so we decided that that's where Hugh would stay. And I stayed upstairs on the top two floors with the, the kids who then went into complete lockdown. So we did, um, uh, we're not supposed to call it homeschooling, uh, home learning, because the teachers are doing the schooling. And so I just, I stayed upstairs for about oh, three or four months um, with the kids and I, I only went out for chemo and they went out for exercise and we got deliveries of food and we wiped it all down with, with bleach and we tried to maintain some sort of semblance of a, of a routine. And um, it, it wasn't actually that dreadful, you know. Um, I, I, went to, I went to bed every night with the kids and I woke up every morning with the kids because, of course, they, um, they set up shop in the big bed. And I ate every meal with them, and um, you know we had our, our scraps every so often, but we got we got through, and and they got a front row seat. You know they they really got to see what it was all about, and you know when I had days we would call them crash days when I couldn't couldn't get up and couldn't um, provide the level of service to which they become accustomed. Um, they would bring me snacks and bring me cups of tea, and we would lie in bed and watch Netflix, and then sometimes. I'd be able to get up and, and work and they would see that as well and see that that's possible. Mm. So Mary, the big question I need to ask, how is your health now? Well, we have no evidence that it is other than good. So um, we don't talk about remission. That, that word doesn't seem to be used anymore. I think the term is no evidence of disease. So the surgery chopped out whatever we did know about the chemo then um, blasted any cells that might have got away, and we don't know whether any did. And the radiation um, then zapped anything that any of the cells that might have been sort of lingering around the site. And now I'm on hormone therapy, which I'll stay on for about five to 10 years, um, which stops hopefully anything from coming back. So it's a long road. Um, but yeah, I mean, none of us know at any time in their life whether or not they've got cancer, to be honest. I mean, it's a dreadful thought, but um, I'm back within the same sort of level of risk, give or take one or 2% as any other woman in the population. So, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible to know. Um, you're obviously extremely stoic and strong. In fact, when your husband Hugh was interviewed by the ABC, he described your strength through a wonderful quote from Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway said that courage is defined as grace under pressure. And what I've seen in Mary in these last few months is not a great surprise to me, but it's remarkable all the same. 
What a wonderful thing to say. Ah, oh, he's very nice sometimes. So no, he's lovely. And he made um, enormous sacrifices. You know, it was very difficult for him um, being cut off from the kids and, and having to go through the whole pandemic on his own as well. And so that's the other side of, you know, my being on my own is that he was on his own as well. And that came, um, you know, it came with its own struggles for him. Yeah. I mean, Mary, obviously everyone's situation is different, but before we go, do you have any message to women out there? Definitely do your own checks. So know your own breasts. Do those, those monthly checks that we're all told to do um, and, and know how your, your breasts feel. They're your breasts. You need to know what's going on with them. Um, I'd also suggest that um, if, if women go for mammograms, find out whether or not you've got dense breasts. Um, the, the density of the breast tissue is a risk factor for, for cancer. And some mammogram services will tell you whether or not you've got dense breasts and others won't. But if you ask, they must tell you. Um, and if you have dense breasts, then you, you need to be a little bit more vigilant. Um, and, you know, know, know your own body and, and and go with your your intuition. Um, if you if you think that something is wrong, then uh, press it with your specialists and maybe try and get a second um, opinion. Don't don't be paranoid, um, but know that there are some sneaky types of cancer out there that don't um, show up in the usual ways. Mm, well, on that note, Mary Lloyd, it was a pleasure talking to you. I wish you all the best of health and look forward to following your road trips for many years to come. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been lovely. Bye. See you. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>